Now, with us in studio this morning, Yvonne Daly, uh, Associate Professor of Law and DCU, Johnny Fallon, Political Analyst for Car Communications, Elaine Lachlan, Political Correspondent of the Irish Examiner, Alan Barrett, Director on, of ESRI and Member of the Climate Change Advisory Council, and Blair Horan, former General uh, Secretary of the CPSU, and you are all very welcome indeed. Um, it's, I mean, obviously, as well as that, there's endless coverage of Kate Byrne and people writing about his legacy and and so on and so forth. But I think we'll start with the with the Quinn story and the death of um Cyril McGuinness. Um Elaine Lachlan, just take us through where it would appear the investigation is now. Yeah, well, it, it, we know that there was targeted um, strikes on a number of houses, both sides of the border and then in the UK where Mr McGuinness died during that raid earlier on this week. Um, the Mail on Sunday, John Lee, I believe, was up around the border area for a number of days and has uncovered uh, a number of facts about Mr McGuinness going back to the 1980s. Claims that he was an informant both for the PSNI and Gardaí, may have been involved in um, historical bombs, um, IRA bombings um, back in the 80s. Um, so there's a, a lot... Um, being unearthed now um, about Mr McGuinness and the type of people that he was involved with and the type of criminality um, that he was involved with as well. Um, where we're at now, though, it seems to be, um, and we saw it this week in the media, we had the Q, um, the Quinn executives all out on media, um, both on RT, BBC, across the newspapers, really trying to keep this in the spotlight. And John McCartan is, is quoted again today, again in, in the Mail on Sunday, as saying um, that he's he's semi-delighted now with all this coverage because they have been pleading with the Gardaí and the PSNI for quite some time. They've been frightened and they believe that their concerns were probably maybe not taken as seriously as they possibly could have been. Um, and he said, it, uh, this time we've managed to get this into into your priority list, your being um, Drew Harris, the guard, the commissioner, yeah. and we were keeping it there. Um, well, you can hardly blame them for that. You can't, and I know Mr McCartan was actually on Clare Byrne in the, the immediate days after uh, the attack on Mr Lunny, and he was asked, well, how are you getting home tonight? Um, do you have guard the protection? And he said, no, I'm getting into my car, I'm driving to Leitrim, I, you know, I live with my family at the bottom of what is quite a long, dark lane. I don't know who's waiting for me, if there's anyone waiting for me there. Um, and he, at that stage, didn't get protection. Now, obviously, we've had the subsequent threats um, and there is, you know, a lot more security along the border and attached to those uh, Quinn executives. But it, it just is startling um, that the level of threats and violence and intimidation that's been going on for many, many years now and seems to have been, you know, left left to just escalate to this point now. Well, well I suppose, <clears throat> and I think the CEO uh, puts it quite strongly, that they've been complaining to the BSNI and the uh, Gordie for a very long time and they weren't seeing the evidence uh, of any reaction, 
But I mean, I if I, I think they're probably quite wise to have come out, spoken to the media, and get mm. the attention because anybody you talk to is utterly shocked yes. at the at the level of of and violence up there. Your first instinct, as well, um, would be probably not to speak to the media in in any circumstances. The fact that these five executives have felt the only option for them now is to keep this in the public spotlight, to keep this in the public eye, and that's the way that they'll remain safe because. Possibly when this story dies down and we move on to something else, that's when the threats will reappear and the intimidation will will happen again. Yeah, you want to come in there, Blair? Yeah, I mean, Maeve Sheehan has quite a detailed um, piece in the Sunday Independent today on the background to Cyril McGuinness and and all of that in terms of IRA uh, membership and what he was involved with, but also the fact that he wasn't expecting the police to actually come upon the safe house he had in the UK and that there's a lot of information there on mobile phones and uh, laptops that we may be able to glean information from. But I watched this Spotlight programme. They repeated it because of the Gay Bourne tribute on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. The Spotlight was repeated on BBC Two on Wednesday and it was quite horrific what happened to Kevin Loney. I mean, absolutely barbaric in terms of the savage attack on him. The uh, implied threat to his children. Uh, I mean... In my view, both the PSNI and the guards would be on behind the curve on this. I mean, there were posters up there that Cavan County Council couldn't take down because their staff were under. Well, threat. I mean, that and is fi- the extra- final, Finally, the guards took them down, but right. only last week, you know. Yeah, but now, <coughs> I mean, the guards will point out that they've sent extra staff there now. Uh, they're deployed to the border area. Armed response unit <laughs> sent to Cavan. Minister and Commissioner have both denied that the border area is lawless. Well, the minister and the commissioner um, say that the area is not lawless, but the descriptions to your average citizen sounds lawless enough. And we have to reiterate that Sean Quinn has come out and said absolutely nothing uh, to do with him. Absolutely, Marianne. There's no reason for any of us to to, to go into that space. But but I think, in fairness, the guards and PSNI are getting on top of it now. What's probably happened means that they may never find out who was behind it, as the paymaster, as they call it. But at least I think it'll stop now. I have to say, I thought the CEO, Liam McCaffrey, was absolutely brilliant in the way he handled Mm. it. I mean, rather than slinking away under the threat of intimidation... He came out full frontal and took it on. And I think that was the decisive right. difference in terms of how this has actually been handled. And I found him absolutely brilliant in terms yeah. of the way in which he yeah. said they were not going to actually uh, be intimidated yeah. by this. Uh, the the other thing is, I don't know how well any of you know that part of the world. I don't know it that particularly well, but I drove through it, I think maybe just like going and returning. And the letter Q is just everywhere, yeah. absolutely everywhere. And and in a funny way, you would wonder, does that keep it in people's minds? Oh, Janie, that used to be Sean Quinn's or Oh, Janie. Well, Marianne, I, I, would, I would very much, be, you know, accept that because, I, you know, I'm familiar with being from Longford, not too far from, from that part of the world. And, you know, there was an old thing where, you know, Roman generals, when they were triumphing, used to have a slave behind them whispering in their ear, remember, you are mortal. Um, and when Sean Quinn was at the height of his powers and the Quinn Empire was there, 
there was a sense very much that he was immortal um, and that he was a god within well, a very small community. Unbelievable things Huge amounts. in terms there was, of business was, and industry and, and not work. Only, not only was it the business and industries and the work, but he sponsored things in communities. He, he, he helped out local events and, and community groups, everything else. He was really deeply embedded in it. But unfortunately, like everything else, he was mortal. Uh, a business, bad business decisions led to the collapse of that empire, and there's no way to get around that. But I do think over those following years, communities felt that he was hard done by, and they wanted to see him back. Now, nobody believed that anything like what we've seen in the last few weeks yeah. was going on, but I do think there has been a grudging kind of sneaking regard for the idea that any of these crowd who've come in now, they're not Quinn, and we do want Quinn back. Well, he has and said also, now... He doesn't want to go back. He doesn't want to go back. And yeah. I think, you know, it is, but I think we reached a real point in this where it got out of hand completely and, and, and various really evil elements got involved in this. And I think what's shocked people in local community up there now is yeah. that they've actually seen a side to this that they never believed it would go that far and nobody wanted to see that. Right. Nobody condones it. Nobody backs it. But I think for a few years, and part of the thing with the police, everything else, why was it slow? Why was, because I think there was a kind of community thing that, well, look, they're just making life awkward. Now we see a very different side. This was yeah. much more than making life but awkward. I, I, yeah, I think that the police, you know, there's a lot of talk about Joe people had to come out in the media and I agree that people were brave in coming out and talking about their story and so on. But I don't think that the actions that we saw by the police at, at the later side of this week were because of those media interventions. This is an investigation that was put together by the PSNI and the Guardi and so on under Eurojust. You don't do that in a couple of days. That's something that's built up, obviously, evidence gathered over months and months and the structures put in place to do this all on the same day in various different areas and so on. So to some extent to say that the police are behind on this. I'm not sure that that's a fair accusation in this context where, you know, things like threats and intimidation, it's difficult to get enough evidence to put together a concrete case to bring for prosecution where something is sort of bubbling in the background to some extent, you know, without some specific action being taken, you know, right. saying like criminal action. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that we don't know exactly what policing was going on behind the scenes on this yeah. you know whether whether there was a feeling in the community that there wasn't enough sort of um, front facing policing being done maybe that's an issue that they should police should be more visible in what they were doing but behind the scenes it does seem to be that they were putting together their evidence and, and getting search warrants yeah and, but the so thing on. about the wanted signs and that I mean it just it just would strike you as extraordinary. Mind you, they say the dogs in the street know all this, but as you might point out, the dogs in the street cannot give evidence in court. No, and, and, and what, you, what you know must be proven. You yeah, know. But the, yeah. the Quinn executives uh, involved, Yvonne, certainly felt that the guards and PSNI weren't doing enough at an early stage. I mean, that certainly <laughs> came across in terms of any of the immediate interviews uh, that they did. But look, I accept. I mean, in fairness, the guards always get on top at the end of the day, be it Limerick or all again yeah. and all of that so you have to hand that to them yeah. as well I wouldn't be unduly critical Alan yeah just I mean this is a, a story I've just read fleetingly um, so I don't claim any major expertise in it but just a, a few reactions one is on the the notion is, is this a lawless area or not and in fairness to Charlie Flanagan uh, when he made the point anyway that it's you know it's not a lawless area I do think it was important to say I mean this is a very specific uh, issue for us you know in a particular circumstance uh, and in fairness to the border area I mean this is an area that generally is 
been under a lot of pressure. Uh, Brexit has obviously brought up a whole oh, host of, of issues. Yeah. And so you, you do worry because of this very, very targeted uh, regime of violence that it kind of tarnishes an awful lot else there. So I think it was important for the ministers to say, look, there is something specific going on here, but it doesn't mean that everything uh, has, has fallen apart from a legal perspective. Second thing uh, on this, obviously the uh, the, the folks who worked for Quinn had a tremendous regard uh, for Sean Quinn, but I have to say, you'd have to have a tremendous regard for the executives who are now in place, who have put up with this sort of intimidation. And I think a lot of people have asked the question, if you were subjected to that, you would surely have walked years ago. I have and to I say, have to say it's it's just line, I don't know how they do it. Yeah, so in terms of a, if a local area wants to sort of honour uh, the executives, yeah. you know, this this is the ground. The last thing I'll say is, that, I mean, I think the question that everybody is simply asking is, well, who is responsible? Right. But, and there seems to be coverage in pretty well everywhere saying that this man that died, uh, w- you know, had, had a track record going as long as your arm, but that he probably was not the paymaster. No, he was the hitman, I suppose you'd sort yeah, of say. Yeah. I mean, but that was yeah. not possible. to do it, yeah, that's yeah. what happened. Yeah, but look, I mean, in fairness, 850 jobs are at stake if this didn't finish and this didn't end, and I think probably we're on the way now that it, it will it will have ended. Whether they ever discover who's behind it is another thing, but right. I think it'll have ended now with what's happened in the last few days. And just to pick up on Alan's point about the whether it's a lawless area, and we are looking at the Cav and Fermanagh border, small regional area at the moment but it was raised in the doll by Pierce Doherty um, earlier on this week now he said he also said we shouldn't be using the term lawlessness um, to describe the people it's a small minority of people involved here but he said the businesses along the border and he's probably talking about Donegal he represents that constituency have stopped ringing the police or the Gardaí um, over instances because they just don't turn up and he mentioned that one business owner had contacted him in the past seven days person came on site, was highly intoxicated, um, didn't know what to do with them, rang the guards and by the time the guardie had arrived, that person had actually got in their car and had left the premises and he was asking, you know, does someone have to die here? Does someone have to be killed on the road by a drunk driver for the guardie to respond? So there is a lack of resources or there's a feeling that there's a lack of resources perhaps along the border area, not just for Manacavan. Okay, okay, we leave that one there for the moment and we're going to move on to the Anna Creagel story, which is very, it's a very hard, hard story. And there is a lot of coverage in the Business Post. There's um, in the Sunday Independent, the Sunday Times. Um, uh, go to you, Yvonne, on, on this one. Yeah. Uh, which ar- articles in particular do you want to um, refer yeah, to? Yes, so I was looking in the Sunday Business Post on pages 20 and 21. There's two articles there. And one said a story of innocence lost and a young life taken away, which sort of goes through, you know, what's happened in the sentencing decision and, and so on. And the sort of ongoing question as to why did it happen? And there's another piece beside it called Pornography Does Not Exist in a Vacuum, which is kind of a broader piece um, looking at young people and I suppose trying to trying to get at, you know, is, is this something that's likely to happen again? Was the amount of pornography on one of the boys' phones a factor in, in why it happened and so on? So, I mean, it was it was difficult, I suppose, again this week for this case to be brought back to us. You know, it, um, it had been quietened down while we were waiting for the sentencing decision. And just to think again for the, the creative parents and, um, and Anna's brother, you know, who <coughs> are, are dealing with the, uh, the fallout of all of this. And I know that they said that they felt that justice had been done in that the criminal justice system did what it can do. But obviously, 
you know, any sentence that would be handed down doesn't bring Anna back and, That's it. and, and doesn't change and, what and happened to her. And the horror, as yeah. described, of imagining what she went through. Yeah, and there's a number of the art, uh, articles across the papers which go into, you know, some of the detail as to it again. And it's it's quite difficult reading, really. But the issue as to, you know, young people and, and do we need to be worried, increasingly worried, um, are, are incidents like this of extreme sort of violence, are they becoming more prevalent and so on? I mean, this really is an extreme case. But in that article... Um, in the Sunday Business Post, pornography does not exist in a vacuum, which is written by a DCU colleague of mine, Caroline West, who lectures in um, sexuality studies. You know, she sort of talks about this about what we need to do for average children. You know, there was no apparent red flags in this case. We're not talking about someone who has a, or a you know, in, in any sort of case, we're not necessarily needing to be worried specifically about kids who have mental health difficulties or anything like that. But for average kids. Are, are we doing enough to protect them, to inform them, to engage with them in, in, in their real lives? And, and it seems, you know, it I've, seems I've two little, well, I've, I've two little girls and it seems, you know, the reality of teenagers lives, which which they'll eventually become, you know, seem a little bit terrifying for for us who are in a different generation ahead of them. But uh, when she's talking about the need to be really engaged and to be calm and open and kind to our kids in engaging with them about the reality of their lives, you know, not not being afraid to hear what they're being exposed to and being able to sort of address that with them. Well, are they going to tell their parents if they're looking at porn? Well, I think this is part of it that from a young age, I suppose, we need to have open discussions with them about, you know, what... What do you look at on YouTube even? Not not just porn. There's mention, again, in this particular article, um, suggests that Boye had viewed um, YouTube videos uh, associated with the far right uh, to do with the New Zealand mosque, mass murder and so on. So the kids are becoming sort of desensitised to some issues maybe yeah. at an early stage and, and then things don't shock them later on. So from the earliest stages, I think we need to be, uh, you know, not to make kids afraid of telling us the things that they encounter in their lives, you know, not to be yeah. too shocked maybe when they say something to you, but to, so to help them process it um, in a way and, and help them to adapt a kind of a critical view. So, it's how to, yeah. it's how, that's the, that's the key of it, isn't yeah, it? Which is how do you, it, yeah. in a sense, you're talking about right and wrong, which you're also talking about very, very complex uh, matters indeed. And, and you had a look uh, at the coverage. Yeah, so, I mean, the coverage, and again, everything we talk about here, of course, is, you know, fundamentally, you're talking about a horrible situation. And I think that everybody is shocked and, and kind of traumatised, uh, especially from a parental perspective. But I think the, the, the coverage kind of breaks down into two uh, broad categories. One is the a discussion about the sort of the psychological impacts of, of pornography. And this is very, very tricky. Uh, because, you know, at, at one level, there's the discussions around the causes, the effects of all the pornography and everything like that. And there's sort of, you know, people hypothesizing as to as to whether or not, in some sense, the viewing of this material caused these guys. But yeah. of course, you can also, you know, maybe they just had some sort of a, a tendency towards the sort of, you know, yeah. b- viewing violent things and to be behaving violently. So at, at, at one level, you know, that that sort of discussion is inconclusive. But what is very, very clear is regardless of cause and effect here, it cannot be a healthy situation. No. That children are being exposed. So at one level, you, you don't have to work. Mary Aiken <clears throat> say yesterday, some as young 
as six. Well, I think there's two dimensions. I mean, one is the relative, you know, the, the, the how young folks, but it's also the severity. And again, reading some of the, the, the severity of the sort of the pornography and the types of things that are being uh, depicted, um, that I think, you know, there's these two strands of worry is that it is very, very young kids, but but also the descriptions of some of the things that people are, are viewing in terms of violence associated with, with sex. Mm-hmm. That's the sort of stuff that, again, is, is, is absolutely uh, terrifying. So I think it is a sort of, you know, it's... <coughs> You can't talk about positives from a situation, yeah, but I think no. to the, ex- the extent to which uh, parents are now being sort of sensitised uh, that this is a, a, a reality and that we have to deal with it. On the public policy bit, though, is quite different. And this is the issue about, well, should the government be doing more to block access to these sort of things or yeah. regulate? I mean, I have to say, I think if you read this for any length of time, you just sort of see it is borderline impossible mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to block this sort of stuff. Kids yeah. are going to be technologically equipped to bypass whatever walls are in mm-hmm. place. The British tried to set up this system where, you know, you'd have identification over 18, all these sort of stuff. I think it just comes back to the notion you have to accept that the reality is the world we now live in uh, is kind of polluted with this sort of material. So it's all about how do we equip our kids to deal in this unfortunate world. Are you happy to hand over a phone to... Um, well, let me put it like that. happy is too strong a word for it. I mean, I certainly I feel if I didn't, he can probably go to school and look at somebody else's phone. Uh, I don't necessarily sort of engineer a situation uh, that you're kind of pushing things underground. Yeah. I assume he's mm-hmm. got his phone, and his iPad in the house and we can talk about this. And we were only talking about this sort of stuff yesterday. Uh, I also want my son to have access to the positive things of course. that are on phones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, for example, I think we put like apps, the Irish Times, the New York Times so Patrick will often sort of say to me oh I see X and Y and Z is happening and so Mm -hmm. you know that there are positives attached to all this Mm. Um, so I mean I'm trying to in in that zone of just having the ongoing conversation of asking him and of course he's neither is he going to come to me and sort of say by the way I was looking at X, Y and Z horrendous thing but I think as a parent all we can do is sort of say well look you know know, we're not comfortable with you you've got to understand that this isn't normal this is you know and do as much as we can but I have to say Mm -hmm. I also think all of us, I think, as parents feel really under-equipped. Yeah. And how, how do you talk, apart from even initiating these very difficult conversations, mm-hmm. what do we actually say? And from a public policy perspective, I would prefer to have, like, really good information from the Department of X, whatever, about how do we deal with this yeah. rather than a big discussion about the technology yeah. of blocking various yeah, sites. Right. For me, that's the I, real I had a situation yeah, with, with my oh, own so, daughter who, who uh, you know, of a number sorry, of them yeah. in, in school had... Uh, phones and, and certain pictures were being sent by, by someone around the, the school. Now Ages? I, 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 these, she's 13, she was about 12 when this was, was right. happening. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, one of the great problems with it was, I, you know, I've always said to my daughter in it, you know, look, you'll have your phone, you can access, you do what you want, but we have a rule. I will never uh, ban her from her phone. I will never tell her that she can't access certain things, but she is to come to me and talk about things. And I said, you will never be told you shouldn't have been on that. You'll never be told. So as you build some trust, because she then came to me and said, actually, these pictures have been going around. And now when I went and I went to school, I went to everything else, start talking about it. People were saying, oh, no, my child's not on that. I don't allow them on it. And I say, I'm telling you, they're on it and they're getting this stuff there. Now, one of the difficulties and one of the great problems in this, though, is, and I think for the Anna Krieger case, there were two things that really stood out for me because as a father of a, a, a 13-year-old daughter, it was really, really difficult to read. But two things stood out for me. Number one, the idea that, you know, we see so much now in schools, rather than trying to equip 
kids and parents and help to go with this, the first idea is let's ban them. Ban them, you shouldn't be on it. And that never works. It will never work. We have to be in with equipping people. And the second thing that I found really difficult in some of the articles today was some of the talk of, of Anna Kriegel, what she experienced in terms of bullying. Her parents tried to, to raise these issues and felt that at times they were told, ah, it's not that bad. And it's, you know, we still ignore a lot of bullying and it's not online. It happens face to face too. And she was also, at times, she ran home one night after she was what we would now call sexually assaulted by a, a group of teenage boys. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of thing. Young girls grow up with that and it's just kind of... It's awful. It's accept terrifying. It. Accept it. Yeah. And we don't, we shouldn't accept it. Right. It should never be accepted. Okay. And, and I think that's the kind of thing we have to deal with and talk with rather than talking about bans and things. OK. One other uh, comment today. John Lonergan uh, is writing in the... Um, Sunday Independent, and he doesn't want these boys to be called evil boys. They committed an evil crime, but they're paying the price. How do you respond to that, Blair? Yeah, I mean, I read John Lonergan's uh, article, and he makes the point that while he came across uh, evil in terms of, you know, teenagers involved in horrific crimes and rape even in, the, in his time, that he never came across anything like this where someone was actually murdered and the only comparison was uh, the social media, uh, uh, the, sorry, the Jamie Bulger case. Oh, but, this, but, but that he, was he, the little boy yeah, in, in, in Liverpool, in yeah. England. But he still references social media as a, a factor. And I'm, I'm not sure I agree with Alan's point now that uh, you can't block or the, that, that issue. And Minister Daly makes the point also in a Sunday Independent article that the blocking issue has to be addressed. I mean, I even see, I've... Uh, four and a half year old granddaughter Emily right and the way in which she can access phones and scroll through them and iPads and all of that it's absolutely mind-boggling even at this stage now I also happen to be involved in European committees on structural funds issues so I see the amount of investment some countries are making in terms of the digital transition in schools and all of that now I know it's controversial here in terms of the iPad issue in schools but countries like Croatia are making a huge investment so that within 10 years you won't have books in schools you will have actually everything online and be able to access. Now in that scenario you can't have a situation where kids of 8, 9, 10, 11 or 12 can actually access violent or pornographic materials so but I, I think there is an issue. It? Well I think the issuer is around uh, if you like identification code system that actually blocks it uh, unless there's a you know I'm convinced Marion we'll have to find a way because otherwise how do you actually You can never block this entirely think, though yeah. and yeah. I think yeah. I think what you do need then is a situation if your kids you know I don't think most young kids are going to be actively seeking out that type of stuff. But you can no, trip across it. it. Maybe you could trip across it. And what you need then is your kid to say, what's this thing I've found? And you to be able to explain to them, this is not something that you need to engage with. This is not something which is valuable for you. and Or that you need to, you know, if they're going to go on and watch it, that they need yeah, to understand yeah. that's not real life or, you know, that this has a danger attached to yeah, it. We're banning things to some extent. I remember years ago, one of the first blockers was one called Net Nanny. And but with the computer, this is the big old fashioned computer that mm. you'd have and a desktop and putting it on. And a very, very small gentleman saying to me, 
did you block the, the, such and such and <laughs> such and such? I was completely ineffectual. Well, you can do yeah. things like blocking your Wi-Fi at night when, you know, and, and making sure they use the tablet in the same room as you, that they're not up in their bedrooms going through things that you don't know they're, what they're looking at. You know, there's ways of doing it. Again, like there's yeah. parental responsibility. But, but, but Anna's it, mother so. had her blocked and had all her uh, passwords and all of that and was able to absolutely control what she had access to. That's the thing. Know? I think that's the fallacy of control, the fallacy that we think as parents. Like, as I say, I'm a 40 odd year old man and I'm going to a 13 year old girl who has grown up with this stuff she would lose me and find me on it so putting in bands and passwords and things Lord God she'd she'd have when I need it fixed I go to her when I lock myself out of it and then I have this idea that oh well I'm a man I'm your dad I'm going to make you come off that so she'd make a joke of me yeah, it's impossible and in practical terms as well while we probably all would agree that you know preventing a 13, 14, 15 year old from getting on these sites is right and correct the actual practicalities of it when you have you know children who are more competent than any adult mm. and can code and mm. do all yeah. the rest and find you know ways to circumvent you know whatever it is an access pin code or using a credit card it's like back in the day if you know kids wanted to get access to over 18s movies or maybe a few cigarettes down the shop yeah. you get your hands on a fake ID or you'd yeah. you know give yeah. an older sibling a, a few yeah. quid mm. People were able to circumvent the law back in the day. Yes. They'll I, do it I, I now. I never did that. No, <laughs> none of us on this panel did, of course. Um, but it is harder to police it in its modern format. It's harder to, it's you know, it's easier for kids to access stuff. It, it's more available to them directly. Um, and I suppose they need to know the dangers of it because they, the dangers of it won't naturally be apparent to them. Some of the articles are kind of really... Uh, finger wagging at at parents, but I mean, just a, around this uh, particular group, there is a kind of an understanding that the kids know more. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, Marion. There's no doubt about that. And obviously, I'm one of the older people in the room here, and clearly, the rest of the people know that blocking is impossible, even though I'm advocating it. <laughs> yeah, but they they know more how to get at it, but they they don't have the wherewithal to understand what they're dealing with and and that even if they're seeing things you know sort of accidentally and so on you know the more they start to see of that the more it can desensitize them to the next thing that they see and the next thing that they see so you know it's it's not really okay to just give your child at any age a phone or a tablet and say, you know, head off to your bedroom there and look at whatever you want to look at without checking in with them. What are you viewing? And Well, I think, and it's, re- I think it's recommended not for use in bed yeah. because mm-hmm. a lot of the bullying can happen it's at true. that but time. But equally, Marion, it's important to remember that both in this case and in loads of other cases, when you look at bullying or you look at these issues or you look at young girls facing difficulties with the, the sexualisation of it, it's still coming not from some weird stranger online from the other side of the world mm. it's people they know right. you boys they know in their communities other girls they know in their communities whatever it is it's face to face still bullying is still what it always was social media may have added to, to it and here and there but it's still people they know people they're coming into contact with acting irresponsibly and as parents I think that's where I also have an 11 year old son and I would hope to always be able to teach him that there's a certain way you have to respect other human beings mm-hmm. and that's what you do and that's where we've all got to stack up as parents rather than how are we going to control our daughter seeing this or doing this you know it's a little bit of looking at how are we raising our sons as well you know oh very much so yeah, yeah. very well because the boys are being bullied as well mm-hmm. absolutely you know um, and, I mean, the, we've heard about the pressure on boys quite a lot, really, uh, leading to suicide and, mm. and despair in so many ways. Mm. So it's, it's, it's most regrettably, it's equal opportunity, most mm. regrettably. 
On that note, I'm going to go to a break. With us in the studio this morning are Blair Horan, Alan Barrett, Elaine Lachlan, Johnny Fallon and Yvonne Daly back after this. Podcast The Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie slash radio. Welcome back to the programme and now we're going to go uh, to another story that gets extensive coverage today uh, and that is the organisation uh, of RTE and uh, one, of the, um, one of the front page stories, RTE staff will be hit for half of 60 uh, million cuts. Uh, Blair Horan, you've been around the block uh, when it comes to negotiating and dealing with these things. How do you take what's happened and how it's being handled? Yeah, I mean, my, my take on it, Marion, I suppose, and I'd have a particular perspective given the, the career I had, but my, my take on it is that the core issue is that the funding model is broke. And I'm not convinced that in that scenario that just a strategy of cutbacks is actually the, 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 the correct strategy. I mean, if you look back when the crash happened in 2008, RT lost $100 million of actually advertising funding. And that hasn't returned. I mean, they're still under pressure because of the migration of funding to Facebook and Google and social media. They're still under pressure in terms of, uh, uh, of funding. And, and I don't think, I mean, I think, okay, there's issues around, <clears throat> if you like, technology and change and all of that that has to be addressed between management and unions. But I don't see that it can be an, an area where RT just goes off and does the cutbacks and then the government stand ba- stands back. I think, I mean, Moya Doherty had an article in the uh, Irish Times on Friday. She did. She was on your programme yesterday. I listened to mm-hmm. it for close to half an hour. Uh, and, I mean, I think in some ways that's coming too late. I mean, RT needed to be making the argument uh, much earlier that the funding model is broken. I uh, mean, well, for, I mean, <laughs> I have heard that the funding model is broken yeah, way well, I back. Haven't, I haven't heard it, uh, Marion. I mean, for me, in the era of Trump and fake news and all of that, yeah. uh, it is absolutely essential. You can even show, see it with Merkel yesterday in terms of the fall of Ber- Berlin Wall. I mean, democracy and values are under threat in Europe. And public service broadcasting is the absolute essential ingredient that you need uh, to address that. So I think it has to be a situation... I mean, I look, I represented staff uh, improving pay, trying to protect pay, and the RT unions are obviously going to have to do that. But the government has a role, and I, I'm disturbed by some aspects of what we saw in the old Fianna Fáil attitude to uh, RT and public service broadcasting. There's an element of that now. We saw it from Pat Leahy's article in the Irish Times in terms of just standing back and letting... And it's not just RT. But if you look but at the creative you know, industry where 40 million that was there is now gone from creative industry and arts that, that were funded uh, through RT. So, I mean, I, I think... I think we have to start on the basis that the funding model is broken and needs to be fixed and whatever RT need to do there, then in terms of change. Can I just cut across you because issue. I know that you were in favour <coughs> of of the water charges. I was, yes, yeah. absolutely. Uh, mm. And look what that did. That has left the whole political landscape yeah, in, I, the I, sta- I, I, in a state of shock. I think that, I mean, the idea that we'll have a household 
media charge in five years' time, in my view, doesn't make any sense. Yes, I think the water charges debacle, as I would call it, has made government reluctant to actually go down this road. Terrified. But, but then again, look at Brendan Howland last night in terms of announcing that they will support uh, a change there. Look at, uh, in fairness, um, uh, the Green Party uh, Eamon Ryan Eamon Ryan has, been, has very been very strong. clear. Yeah. I mean, I read the report uh, that the uh, Oireachtas uh, Committee on Communications issued uh, on the funding model for RT. Yeah. And that gave clear cover for any government to say, look, either the licence fee has to increase or we have to tackle evasion or we have to change to a new model. But there's no choice, Marion, in my view. I mean, I think... RTE should not be left there to just hang out to dry in terms of it's up to them just to do all the change. It should be a joint effort between government fixing the funding model and unions and management doing whatever they have to do to adjust to whatever is needed. Yeah, I suppose I, I come from a slightly broader uh, perspective, and this is reflected in some of the coverage today. And it's this idea that, OK, so RTE is under pressure, but it's just another public sector agency under pressure. OK, and all of these public sector agencies do tremendously important work. So we'll accept for a moment that RTE does tremendously important work. OK, but so does the health sector. You know, so does the arts, a whole variety of things. Uh, and so what we need to do is we need to think about RTE and start asking the sort of the questions about, right, well, what, what, you know, from a public public expenditure perspective, what what do we need to be doing? So backing up then a little bit on the licence fee, uh, I mean, I think th- there is a general acceptance now that the, the old-fashioned notion of having a TV licence is just a kind of a meaningless uh, notion and it kind of reflects a little bit on our discussion of a few moments ago when so many people uh, never watch RTE, don't watch a television in the sort of the old traditional sense. I think it's very, very clear that that, that sort of a notion of a, you know, a television licence... It's is just, all changed. It's, it's all changed. And then, I think, I mean, Blair sort of touched on this, well, if we're not going to do a true television, you know, we should have another sort of, of fee. But nobody really has come up with any sort of a sense of well, what what could possibly replace it? So well, Colin McCarthy. Well, well sorry, just give. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Colin McCarthy makes the point today. Uh, which at one level I see an awful lot of sense in is that maybe RT should just be funded out of the exchequer. Okay, that it's a you know it's a it's a public service. Uh, we collectively agree that it's an important public service. So let's just abandon the notion of having license fees and everything mm-hmm. like that, and and do it that see, way. And no, maybe not everybody thinks it's an important public. service. Well, now here's the, this is onto the next point, and this is where RT have a responsibility. So if you think about it like that, okay. Really what the government, well, this will ultimately move in the particular direction, that the government will fund it at some level, OK? I don't see a situation that the government or, or any government is going to say, well, we're not going to fund RTE at all. Of course they're going to fund it at some level. But RTE has to do two, two things. It, again, like every other public sector organisation, is going to have to say, well, what is it we do? Um, that, you know, means that the government should hand over a dollar of cash to us on an annual basis. OK, what, what is it? And there's plenty of scope that they can do that. But they also then have to manage the budget that they're given very, very well. And I think what a, a lot of people, want, you know, when any organisation again comes along and says, well, you know, we're nearly broke and we expect you to fill the gap. Again, yeah. the government is never going to say, well, we're going to fill the entire gap because then every org- organisation uh, would come absolutely. along. Absolutely. And, and again, if I, and if I can just draw another, another parallel here, I mean, the universities are a group uh, who have been starred for cash, do incredibly important work, make the case all the time and there is this sort of toing and froing where the government said you, you'll have to do more. So back to RTE, I think they need to manage their existing resources and I don't know enough about the micro details so mm-hmm. um, I'm sure they're doing generally quite a fine job but maybe there's some things that efficiencies or whatever is that, that could be brought about but the other thing is in terms of convincing the state and the broader population why are they getting the amount of money? The question is right, well what, you know, what is the essence of public sector broadcasting? Blair touched on it earlier on 
absolutely in the age of fake news, I think everybody gets that having a dedicated public sector broadcaster in the areas of news, current affairs, I think we always think like Irish related drama documentaries, the sort of things that may not otherwise uh, happen. There's always a dilemma, again, for an organised, because it could be the case that if you do certain things, they're actually revenue earners. So you might sort of produce, you know, the type of shows that aren't like, you know, culturally cutting edge, but if they're tremendously popular, so say something like Dancing with the Stars, whatever like that, Uh, if that's a real revenue earner, maybe you make the case, well, we're a public sector broadcaster, but we need to do that sort of thing. So we get the money to yeah, do the other sort of thing. But that's really, the, the, I mean, I think these are the parameters of the debate and maybe all organisations from time to time kind of run up uh, the sort of financial difficulties yeah. that they are then forced, um, you know, to, to, yeah. to really look and see, well, what is it we're doing? Okay, I mean, in, in the, the Sunday Independent today, Hamlin, uh, was giving out about even the way the story was broken. Uh, not saying that it was wrong to leak because all news organisations are going to use leaks <laughs> simple as, uh, but that it was treated as a cultural and an artistic event rather than a business. Mm-hmm. Johnny, what would you say? Yeah, I mean, and I think that that is part of it that, you know, the, 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 uh, that perception of it. And, and, and it goes back to this, I mean, one of the real critical problems here between government and RTE, as Alan said, it's going to be funded at some point. But you have on one side government who just don't want to deal with the issue. I mean, look, at there is enough between the academics who've discussed this, the the, the, the experts who've discussed it. All the, there's enough people, if you lock them in a room for a week, we'd have a solution on a new charge and we'd be brought in. Politicians don't want to deal with yeah, that. And though. an election coming up. And an election coming up. They yeah. don't want to, it's, it's a bit like the old rod licence years ago, where it's kind of like, we do that and then suddenly there was everybody was a fisherman and everybody was annoyed about it. You know, everybody in this case will be, I'm not going to pay the RTE. The problem with it is, as it stands, is that these two issues have come now. So it's it's been convenient, I think, for the government to put reform of RTE tied to the actual licence fee. Those two issues for a start need to be separated. RTE needs to reform, no doubt about it. There's lots of things there. Just commercially, uh, in terms of its own business competing, everything else, it's going to have to have reforms. The government should, side by side and separate to that, be looking at how are we going to fund public service broadcasting. At the moment, when you have a licence fee, it is regressive because apart from certain groups on social welfare, it doesn't take account of income. So everybody pays us, everybody has to bang this charge in. But, but um, nobody complains about that for Netflix. Nobody complains about it on Netflix because it's choice. But if you bring in something oh, that if you have a compulsory yeah. charge that everybody has to pay, yeah. that then becomes incredibly regressive for them. So where these things become easy, I mean, any charge, behaviourally, any charge, you've got to make it easy, you've got to make it simple, it's got to be something people don't even notice they're doing. When you have a charge that someone has to physically go or has to be direct debited out in one lump or sign up for things, that just makes it difficult. If you had a situation this was being taken out of uh, as a small part of taxes out of someone's gross salary, people wouldn't even notice us in that regard. Mm. But as it stands, I think we have to have a complete reform of how we collect it, where it's and who it's collected from. And then we have to have a complete reform in terms of how it's spent, because that's where I think RT have the communications disconnect. They do really, really good stuff that people understand with public service broadcasting. But because of the competitive environment they're in, the license fee also funds normal competition for programmes imported or bought elsewhere where we can buy the rights to this because we've got the license fee. 
but the public don't that's not public that's normal competitive and RT are going to have to find I think in the in the years and months ahead that way when they're competing with other channels and they may be competing for funds in future years when yeah. this is reformed where they're able to say this is definitely good public service stuff that wouldn't be made otherwise and this is normal commercial stuff. Okay, Elaine? Yeah, one of the suggestions as well to get away from that um, putting a levy that the TV licence on people was to, to abolish the TV licence completely and just directly fund it from taxes mm-hmm. um, and then the government can decide how much money they put in each each year to the RT. You could bring that along and you go back to your Netflix thing would people then, if they're not paying the TV licence, be happy to pay six euro or seven euro to watch the All Ireland final, let's say, mm-hmm. or something that, that pay per view, pay per view, yeah, exactly, yeah. or pay per month, and you get, you know, your prime times and and your current affairs bundle or your yeah. your your soaps bundle with Fair City. Um, that hasn't really been discussed though. Um, we just hear that oh, it's 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 going to happen in five years' time. There'll be some sort of a different charge. Haven't quite worked it out yet. Mm-hmm. Legislation will be required, but that's all down the line, and that's that's a, at right. least five, another government. Five years away. is yeah. way too long in the current mm-hmm. environment. You can't wait yeah. five years. As I say, you put bring people together. You have enough experts in the country. You put them in a room for a week, and you come up with a solution. Well, Just we'll, take well a Heather Humphreys made the point, and I mentioned it again yesterday. You know that when presenters are paid large sums of money, that it's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. Uh, comparing with the president of the United States of America, um, the. Um, but Yvonne? Yeah, I, I think the pay-per-view idea is probably a good one, particularly, I, I think, in the context of a very wide Irish diaspora abroad who might be willing to pay for pay-to-view things like the All-Ireland Final or like, uh, you know, any other sort of Irish cultural thing. And just to say as well, I, I see a huge value, obviously, in public service broadcast in the area of news and current affairs and so on. But I also really see a value in the more flimsy, maybe, mm-hmm. shows. Um, I'm a massive fan of things like Raised by the Village and pulling with my parents is an absolute hit in, in, my, in my eyes but these are really important things or say first dates is something that you watch like we can't always be watching UK content because I really think now I've got a broader important point that I'm making is that I really feel the pressure of globalisation on Ireland as a small country where we do have our own identity, our own culture, our own language and so on, which is very important, but that there's a tendency to watch a lot of US broadcasts, a lot of UK broadcasts. Australian. And that we, yeah, and mm. we may forget who we are and that we're different. And in a sort of a broad political sense, I feel like the bipartisan nature of US politics and UK politics, which are quite different to our more yeah. centred kind of approach, is something that we need to be cautious of not thinking that we are those places. But there will be a lot of people listening to these prog- to this programme today saying, what are they talking about in there? Bunch of fat cats haven't moved with the times. I'm not paying it. You can take your licence fee and shove it up your jumper, essentially, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and sort out your own problems. Yeah, and, and Keith Duggan had a good piece in the paper during the week when he said, you know, many people like to have a kick at RTE on the basis that it's always going to be there, right? But is it always going to be there? Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't matter how you do the funding model. The key thing is that the, the funding has to be there. I mean, the editorial in the Sunday Business Post is quite good and quite supportive. It says RTE needs support in its darkest hour. Now, public service broadcasting, as Yvonne pointed out, is much broader than just news and mm-hmm. uh, current affairs. But they but do news make and the current the, affairs are hugely important. Absolutely, course, yeah. absolutely, and they do make the point, right, that Tony Connolly's 
interventions on Brexit, right, have been superb, right? Mm -hmm. They're taken up even in the UK because they know he has the best assessment mm -hmm. of all that's going on. So, I mean, I, you know, I make no apologies for it, Marion. I think RTE is an absolutely essential institution. And okay. that's why I criticise government for not doing enough to support okay, it. OK, can we, can we move on? Or people will think we're engaging in some kind of a loving, which was <laughs> not in any way uh, the plan. But there is a story about Paul Reid, and there's a profile of him in the Business Post. And talking about cutting, uh, cut staff from 13,000 to 5,000. That's one heck of a cut. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a there's a story in terms of having, when he's taken over from the HSE and uh, you know what what he plans to do in terms of uh, trying to address some of the issues that's there, including some of the issues around cervical check and all of that. Uh, and there's quite a large profile of him then personally in terms of himself and. Uh, where he's come from and he started uh, as a cable jointer in Aircom and uh, came up through the ranks in Aircom and yeah. I, I didn't know him because I was gone by the time he came into uh, public expenditure and reform uh, but I did meet him I got invited back to my union conferences after I retired and met him and spoke to him uh, quite a bit in terms of because uh, he was there as well and a uh, very nice individual uh, well respected and uh, you know uh, unions found him uh, I won't say easy to deal with, but, you know, good to deal with in terms of knowing where he was coming from and being able to deal with him. And he seems to have, I mean, I think the health service is probably an impossible job in terms of ever getting to grips with it, because the fundamental problem is there's never enough resources in the health sector, no matter what you do. It's, yeah. a, it's a bottomless pit. So let's hope that in terms of the experience he's had between Fingal and uh, public expenditure and reform and his previous roles in Aircom that he can get some sort of a grip on things. And and how do, how did she persuade the unions to take a cut from 13,000 to 5,000? Well, I'm not sure that that's going to happen, you know. In time. Yeah. I mean, I, I No, think in the past. I, I'm, I'm not sure. That it happened in Guinness, yeah. I remember. Um, and it happened without strikes. Yeah. I'm, as they modernised. Yeah, I'm, but, I'm, not, I'm not sure about that, Marion. But, you know, I mean, in terms of... Uh, I think his central thing is that in terms of when the HSE was founded, the uh, the staffing wasn't adjusted at the time. And now that they're going back to a more regional model, yeah. he intends to try and address some of well, the Well, Tony O'Brien so. is addressing it today and he's addressing it in terms of, you know, people in going into... Um, overcrowded situation and he says discussing the matter with the head of the what does what does the state do uh, which is basically what do the politicians do they discuss the matter with the head of the HSE they have a teleconference with the hospital group chief executives releasing a few home care packages uh, talking about the number of beds closed by previous Fianna Fáil administrations expressing beyond frustration with the suitably furrowed brow and above all deflecting all responsibility to the frontline health service he's not mixing his words anyway I've got to take a break or I'm going to miss the 12 o'clock uh, deadline for news back after this or are we going to go on to 12 o'clock we go to the, we go to the news now welcome back to the program now this week a specialist defense forces team has been sent to the Turkish-Syrian border as part of a bid to bring Lisa Smith, 
uh, and her two-year-old daughter back to Ireland. Uh, the Dundalk native and former Irish soldier travelled to Syria three years ago to join the so-called Islamic State. Uh, her return to Ireland has been ge- her return or non-return uh, to Ireland has been generating controversy. Well, joining me now from our Cork studio is Dr. Orla Lynch, who's Head of Criminology at UCC. Uh, With a background in psychology, Orla, uh, you have a special expertise in this whole concept of radicalisation and how you de-radicalise, and you've been following uh, the Lisa Smith uh, case. What's your analysis of her in as much as you can from what you've read in terms of her conversion uh, and in terms of her decision uh, to go essentially into an area of war. Uh, Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. Um, I suppose she's not unique in that um, over the past number of years there's been thousands of uh, so-called foreign fighters have left European countries to join ISIS and their affiliates and also groups who are fighting in opposition to ISIS. And there's estimates that um, about 10 to 14 percent of all the individuals who travelled were women. So she's um, she's certainly not on her own. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of her own journey, we, what we know from some of uh, Mar- uh, uh, Noreen Costello's reporting and, and other reports from various think tanks, um, she was quite active in seeking to join ISIS. So she was, she was quite deliberate. You know, she chose a very deliberate journey. And, um, you know, by all accounts, she was quite active out there in that world. Knowing why somebody joined is is almost impossible because the only way we can actually know is for them to explain it to us. Yeah. But knowing how they got involved is quite interesting. And and you mentioned there the process of uh, conversion to Islam. Yeah. Um, that's a very normal process. You know, many people undergo that process. So I think the focus is not necessarily on that, but the focus is on what we'd call meaning making and a search for identity. So um, when we think about why and how people get involved in ISIS, a lot of the time we're looking at things like identity, personal identity, social identity, a shift in how you see the in-group and the out-group, but also action-orientated individuals. So people are looking to do something. And if you think about what ISIS offers, ISIS offers individuals the opportunity to enact what they think. So it's doing, it's the doing of of the radicalism that's the appeal of ISIS. Well, I mean, it's perfectly valid for anybody to convert to any religion uh, uh, that they want to. Uh, there's a question mark over it if you're going into where it is known there has been some of the most savage brutality visited on, you know, fellow citizens of the world. Exactly. I suppose the issue is many people will deny that they knew that was happening. And a lot of the time people will talk about uh, this idea of a, a true and a pure Islamic life. Um, unrelated to religion, this is not about religion, this is about an individual seeking out this clarity, um, you know, driven by feelings of social exclusion or discrimination at home. They then seek out this more simple life, this more rule-guided behaviour that uh, that ISIS were promising. But other parts of it are... are um, to be some part of something bigger, to be part of something divine, um, you know, and, and seeking that kind of belonging out there. Um, and, and also oftentimes running away from situations they're not happy with in their home environment. So we saw a lot of uh, individuals from Europe leaving 
uh, due to conflict with parents, issues in school, you know, unemployment. Um, well, kind of none of those appear to uh, apply to her. And you must mm-hmm. remember that she said, when you, when you talk about action, I mean, she said that in terms of war, she was not engaged. Yeah, and every example you can think of, we've witnessed. So people who are going... Uh, to fight, people who are going to be doctors, people who are going for excitement, people who are going because their friends went. So there's no one way of knowing why individuals actually went and the many, many stories we've heard um, are extremely diverse. Now, obviously, somebody who travels to a war zone to engage potentially in political violence will say they didn't engage in any illegal activity. So that we don't know. And any of the individuals who do interviews on their return tend to say they weren't involved in violence, that they were there in a support capacity. So I suppose that's kind of not very useful in, in terms other of our words, they did, They're not going to incriminate themselves. Obviously, yeah. 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 Uh, in terms of her rights, it, mm-hmm. it strikes me sometimes that, that there nearly isn't a, a question about her rights She's an Irish woman. Her her daughter is an Irish um, citizen. That's it. I mean, we have all sorts of citizens and we, we can't leave somebody stateless. I think it's against all the international conventions to do so anyway. Absolutely. But the other issue related to that is the fact that the alternative is to leave her and her child in Syria. People have been transported to Iraq for prosecution in Iraq. And we know that there is massive process violations um, in those trials. There's a real risk of torture um, under Iraqi terrorism law, there's the death sentence as a possibility and life imprisonment. The other alternative is that Syria, if they take over territory, that they would be involved in prosecution. And we know that Human Rights Watch have talked about the violations there. So there really are very few alternatives here. And the Turkish, and because the Turkish have said words to the effect that they don't want to run a hotel for, uh, for all other nationalities who kind of are reluctant to welcome home their own citizens. Absolutely. And we do have responsibilities under international law. So, um, and the other thing, of course, is that this individual hasn't been charged or prosecuted of any crime. So that's, you know, that's the other side of this. Yeah, and I mean, the Guardian said that they will be talking to her. But as of now, there's no, no evidence of any sort whatsoever. Um, but, but, Alan, I'll go to this one. I mean, it, as, as I said, sometimes it seems to me odd that there's even a discussion. She's an, she has her rights. The same as a, a, a very somebody who did very other undesirable things have their rights. Yeah, no, I, I would tend to agree with you uh, on this. I presume there are sort of procedures laid down that if an Irish citizen finds themselves in difficulties in a particular situation, uh, that the state acts accordingly. Uh, it doesn't, in a sense, act as sort of judge and jury in advance. And again, I think you pointed out that while the circumstances here are extremely uh, unusual, to put it mildly, yeah. um, you know, in, in, instinctively you might have a reaction that, well, maybe this person isn't entitled to exactly the same, uh, whatever. Uh, systems as, as other people but uh, I think as, as you've described As somebody I, I, working I for an NGO say that got into difficulties yeah, no, Absolutely and I suppose the fact that there is a, a child involved as well uh, just sort of adds uh, further to it and I, I, I think actually I mean the, the British had a very strange case on this but you remember they, they, they essentially uh, 
dropped one of their citizens on the basis that they also had Canadian citizenship. Now, I think this um, frustrated the Canadians enormously because, again, you can render somebody stateless in a sense. A state can sort of say they're not part of us if yeah. the person has dual citizenship and then it sort of falls back. Or on Pakistani. It, there, there were a number of cases where these yes. sort of... But, I mean, in this case, this, this person doesn't. Uh, and I would have to say, from a sort of an, an Irish citizenship perspective, I would prefer to see our state take a compassionate view rather than a sort of a, you know, a, a nasty sort of view where we're saying, well, we didn't like the circumstances and we're just going to let this person hang uh, in a sense. And again, I think it's clear if this person ends up in Iraq and a variety of other places, uh, it, it would be pretty horrible. And I think we as a, you know, as a state at that point would, would feel horrible if, if, right. if the person was, for example, to get yeah. the death penalty. So I, I, I think compassion, I suppose, is the, is the drive. Okay, Lucinda Creighton was saying, it could be beneficial to us. You read that. Bill. Yeah, I did, <laughs> Marion. And Lucinda Creighton goes through some of the issues saying that, OK, from a national self-interest, she might be a danger and that could uh, mitigate against her not coming back. But equally from uh, intelligence she may have, that might be very, very useful. Uh, but also pointing out the humanitarian considerations. Yep. And, you know, EU member states, the death penalty is ruled out in all circumstances. That's one of the values of the European Union. And to send her to Iraq and risk her being possibly subject to the death penalty uh, would be a no-no. So in, in my view, as Alan says, I mean, we really don't have a choice but mm -hmm. to accept her back and particularly because her her young child is an Irish citizen, I presume, as right, well. Right, right. Yeah, I'd agree with all that's been said. And I wonder as well, would there be a danger of, you know, if the Irish state were to abandon her to her fate as such, there'd be a danger of making something of a martyr of her, you know, that those who might like to follow in her footsteps would then be sort of justified in saying, well, your own state doesn't care about you. You know, it's as bad as any other place and be almost, you know, counterproductive to some extent. I, I think there's... Uh, huge humanitarian obligation on us to, to bring her home. She's an Irish citizen abroad in a position of danger. We should bring her home um, and her child. And then she should be prosecuted. There, there must be a process of law then. If she's committed offences, she should be investigated and prosecuted for those in the same way as anyone else right. would be. Mm -hmm. um, but as, as you say, there may be value in getting... She may have information that she... Uh, well, this is what we'll, yeah. well broadly what we'll lose in is Creighton was was yeah, was, she, was writing if, about. If she's today. been an insider, she may have right. information useful to us or the international community. Mm -hmm. If I can go back to you, Orla in Cork, um, given what happened at the Bataclan, mm -hmm. and given what happened in the airport in Belgium, and given what happened at concerts, people are understandably very very nervous of, you know, as it were, being within a, a danger mm -hmm. of some sort, of some dreadful catastrophe happening. Mm -hmm. That's understandable. I suppose the thing to always bear in mind is if we go back to basics on this and we're talking in Ireland about five people to date who have returned home. None of those individuals who were foreign fighters, either for ISIS and affiliated groups or for related groups, have been deemed any threat. And we do have to bear in mind that th there is hysteria that goes with this, understandable hysteria, but the threat hasn't manifest here. And the other thing to bear in mind... Yes, is 
Yes, that is true. I mean, there's always going to be a threat at just the level. But if you think about the battle clan, if you think about the other attacks across Europe, these were not what you might call lone wolves. These were not individuals who appeared out of nowhere. These were highly networked individuals with involvement from central control. But that's so- how she got involved, as I understand it. I mean, she she was searching for meaning in her mm-hmm. life and and she she looked at many options and she, she took to Islam and she read the Quran and all that. Mm-hmm. And then she dealt online with somebody who, it is alleged, radicalised her. Yeah, and you have an awful lot of people who we would call are radicalised that never do any violence. So you can have support for ISIS, you can be out there and never do any violence. And there's a huge leap between holding extreme ideas and doing violent behaviour. That's not to say she hasn't done it or the same as we, we don't know about anybody who's been out there what they've done. But we do have to bear in mind that it's quite an unlikely scenario that as a woman in ISIS, she was involved in violence. Now, not her in particular, but all women who were out there. They had limited opportunities for violence. But also, even if this individual was like other women, the recidivism rate for people involved in political violence is very, very low. So like if you talk about ordinary uh, crime and offending, recidivism, so repeat offending is 50 to 70 percent. The figures we know from political violence and terrorism is under 10 percent. So again... It's not to dismiss a threat, but we have to be rational in how we think about it. Indeed. I'm not sure that all of the women Mm -hmm. that travelled from all of the places uh, that went out to ISIS, that you can say that they didn't fight. No, you can't say that. But the opportunities were much more limited than for men. Right. Okay, you wanted to come in there. I was just going to make the point that Lisa Smith, of of anyone who's you know, she's known to the authorities. Mm-hmm. She poses less of a threat, threat than those who we don't know. So, Fair you know, point. if she's brought back, yeah. she'll mm-hmm. be kept under a level of surveillance, I'm sure. Uh, I've always have queries about this, but Orla Lynch, how do you de-radicalise somebody? You know the way we, you know, you talk about some group of people and they're described as a cult and how do you change them from being a cult? But your people can call anybody's religion a cult. True, I suppose... When we think about radicalization, a lot of the time we think about somebody being brainwashed or this kind of, you know, lack of control of their thoughts and their behaviours. But if you look at what other countries do when these people return, so the UK have a very comprehensive model. Australia has a comprehensive what does, model. What does the UK do? So the UK, for example, has a prevent strategy, first of all, which is aimed to stop it happening before it actually does. Yeah. And they would have a voluntary system called Channel where you can refer people who you believe are at risk of radicalization. So teachers, police officers, community members, family members can refer individuals to channel and they would intervene to prevent radicalization. Now there's a problem with that because 70% of people who are referred never get any intervention. So there's a very much a false positive going on there. But of those individuals who... Um, who maybe, come back though. Yeah, who come back or have been in prison, there is a process and it's, it's, um, there's not a whole lot known about the process. But it's called um, a disengagement and desistance program, so DP, uh, DDP, and it covers people who come back from Syria and Iraq. It also covers people who um, cannot be prosecuted because they don't have the evidence for it. And that's the kind of situation we might be looking at here. And what they do is they offer um, kind of personalised intervention, tailored intervention, practical support, things like housing, education, identity therapies. Um, they look at... I can hear people yeah. getting angrier and yeah. angrier <laughs> by the moment. Do you know? I know. Because, you know, that you, 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 you 
join a violent organization, mm -hmm. go to a war zone where there are pretty amazing things happen mm -hmm. and you come back and the first thing you get sorted out on housing. No, I don't think that will go down too well, no. uh, to tell you the truth. It's the same as if you look at kind of probation opportunities that would have in Ireland, it's the same as in the UK. So it's that type of measure. It's, it's the wraparound okay. services that probation tend to offer. So I know it sounds like this is a very specialised approach and it is, but it, this is kind of best practice probation when you think about what it actually is. Okay. Okay, Dr. Orla Lynch, Head of Criminology in UCC, thank you very much indeed. Welcome back to the programme. Now, uh, our conversation so far really doesn't uh, reflect the amount of coverage that there is in the papers today uh, about Gaybarn, greatest broadcaster ever, great political skill in the turmoil of Montrose, a closet fiend of fallers, there's somebody who had a sneaking regard for Oi, a tribute to RTE's better days, Gay's work is not finished, and more and more and more and more and more. Um, who will I go to on this? I'll start with you, Johnny. What do you think of the coverage? Yeah, I thought that, it, you know, it's it's always interesting to read the coverage when uh, a major figure dies, be it political or or a media figure. And, you know, one of the interesting things I think about it uh, from an Irish perspective is because people can get all head up and say, you know, oh, we have too much coverage or we're not covering in the right yeah. way. But with somebody like a Burma, I think it's always it's, it's almost therapeutic as a country because his, his career spanned so long. That in looking back, in that nostalgic look back, we also get to look back on ourselves and we let to look back on the development of society over time. And one of the articles that I found interesting this morning was actually Carol Hunt had a piece where she said he was the father of our own Me Too movement, you know. Uh, and, and, and this has been part of a lot of the coverage today where they're trying to talk about was he conservative, what was his real political view, where was it stands here, what party did he support, all of that kind of thing. I think that's incredibly hard to pin down with Gay Byrne, but what he what was... What he really wanted and what he really connected with was an audience. An audience and people and talking to people. And between his morning radio show and then how that... Fit, fitted into the late late show itself he connected he did actually I think that's where Carol Hunt makes point he did actually connect with women on uh, a way now he would never have said he was a feminist he would never have been that kind of or certainly not a radical feminist in, in, in the way we'd know it today but he did at a time start that morning radio programme was like everybody listened to that certainly all the housewives as we would term it now you know yeah. back in that time and so many so many for such a large amount of women that were at home full time looking full -time after and, and had no option and, yeah. and this became one of the real platforms for them to actually discuss ring into the show start to debate some issues now Gay never kind of put out his own political view but he certainly opened cans everywhere and then let let what happened out of that and then on the Late Late Show he would then bring about these issues where he would talk about them and we all have memories of do you remember the Late Late Show where and when but they're societal memories and, and while it's, it's important to remember the person I think what's really valuable about the coverage has been a real opportunity particularly for younger people who weren't familiar with that to look back with the rest of us on yeah that's where we came from that's the kind of society it was and, and you know that's important and therapeutic for a country when any figure uh, passes away Blair you want to come in? Yeah no, I, I think he was a unique individual and I mean he effectively got a state funeral which was absolutely right that he, that, that he should you know because I think he played a pivotal role in the modernisation of our 
Ireland in terms of uh, now it wasn't just him he had the unique genius but obviously the organisation behind him as well uh, made that contribution but there's some suggestion that you know he was really a conservative and uh, but put a radical agenda but if you look at the fact that uh, he supported the same sex marriage and was pivotal in terms of people who mightn't have said well if gays doing it well then maybe I should take this on board so so no, I mean obviously complex and the, the the genius of it as well was never to reveal his true feelings yeah. right I think apart from on the EU I think he did a bit but other than that he didn't really go there in terms of that so I don't look I think it's genuinely you can say we'll never see the likes of him again certainly not in my lifetime anyway yeah you know, Alan. The, the coverage is amazing and uh, it's so multifaceted. I mean, it's, it's sort of covering um, everything. And some of these are sort of deep dives into the sociology of Ireland of the 70s and the 80s. There's sort of articles about his work processes and everything like that. Um, again, Charlie Hawhey. There's a whole host of characters sort of come up. Um, and I, I can only imagine, uh, I didn't know Gay Byrne at all, but um, you, you know those sort of um, where poets uh, write something and then there's dissertations and books written about what yeah. they wrote and they probably sort of feel well actually what you know what I meant was what I actually wrote down there was no need to and you do have this sort of a sense now there's this proliferation uh, of, of interpretations but I, I do wonder if, if it is all slightly simpler uh, that he was ultimately an entertainer a bit of a showman I don't mean that in a dismissive sort of way but really the genius was in, in understanding that if you could get people into his studio and there was a sort of a conflict between them this could be very very gripping television and although it's often written about in some sort of sense that he had, you know, almost at a conspiracy level that he himself was trying to open up all these discussions. Uh, the, the effect of what he did might have been that we talked about a whole range of yeah. things. That were, but I'm not at all convinced that he, he was trying to necessarily do that. What he wanted was an entertaining show. He wanted a good programme. I've often, I heard him interviewed once and I've never been able to sort of trace exactly where the quote came from. But he was making the point that um, current affairs and news and a whole range of these sort of things, uh, people might dress them up has been tremendous intellectual pursuits and everything like that but at their heart there is an element of entertainment okay and so again great things can happen out of these sorts of discussions but I think if you if you look back at a, an awful lot of those great um, late lates when again we talked about things that as a country we'd never talked about uh, it was the, the tension and the ability to get people in rooms together uh, and you probably had half the country who were thinking oh I'm glad Bishop whoever said whatever versus somebody else who said oh I'm glad young radical got to say whatever and that's why it was compelling and the effect was was amazing. But can I just, on the mother, I think everybody remembers their mother listening to Gay Byrne. Yeah. 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 And during the week too, this other thing is, you know, remember that jingle at the start? Yeah. Of the, you know when you hear a bit of music, everybody else, has, everybody has this reaction to the Glen Road theme tune yeah. that yeah. you can remember yourself, say, sitting yeah. in the kitchen in your house, your mother doing something. Mm -hmm. And it just had that effect. It was yeah. a, a fabulous week for nostalgia. Yeah, I feel like I could smell the toast in my granny's house uh, <laughs> when I hear the jingle. Yeah. <laughs> And it does go back as well to a previous conversation we had around RT and uh, where it is at viewership, listenership now. Gayburn, a lot of the commentary today is saying the best broadcaster ever, we'll never see the likes of him again. And we won't, purely because I think it was mentioned during the week that when he was um, presenting The Late Late, you had around a million people tuning in every week. Well, we, that was right. There was one channel land and then two channel land. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So now you've such diversity, not just across television stations and radio stations, but across media and, and online that people aren't tuning in 
all at once, certainly, mm. and to the same thing. So they're not really getting that Bishop was on, mm. did you see mm. him? Right, that water yeah. cooler element has, has subsided slightly. Okay. He held the door over, open for you, I understand, when he, you left he this did. studio. No, this, this was a real regret. Yeah, I uh, obviously have done your show a few times uh, yeah. over the years. And I remember one day walking through the corridor and uh, coming up to the door and the door opened and none other than Gay Byrne was holding the door open. And I have to say, like instinctively, I said, oh, I'd love to introduce myself to Gay Byrne. Just shake his hand, primarily because so I could then tell my mother, oh, by the way, I should, because that obviously would have, you know, give, given me a status in the family uh, higher than it currently is. But I was starstruck. I, I, and again, I was in my 40s at the time, but I remember I actually kind of couldn't get the words in this sort of flustered moment. Um, and I really regret it now, obviously, because I, I now can't tell the story that I did shake his hand. <laughs> but, but he did have that sort of, like, it was sort of like seeing somebody who was kind of godlike. Um, and yeah, amazing. But he Last did, he, 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 he did really Britain. care about the issues, Marion, in my experience, because I was on a panel discussion on radio with him in, in the 80s when there was a genuine concern then in the mid 80s that we might be, if you like, in a state of permanent emigration was going to be a problem for Bad Ireland. Jacks, I think uh, is yeah, the word and, and, and youth unemployment. Right. And he was very courteous in terms of having a chat with us beforehand and saying, look, it's only going to be a okay. little chat we have. But he was on top of the issues and genuinely cared about the right. issues, in my view. OK, uh, we will go. Go and deal with other issues that other people are dealing with now at the moment because this week the UK general election officially got underway with Boris Johnson's trip to meet the Queen on Wednesday. Uh, from electoral path to party splits and political bowouts, Adam Bolton of Sky News uh, hopefully will bring us through all that. Busy first week, Adam, uh, from our side of the pond. Is it wrong to think it's all about Brexit or is there more? Well, I think there's a, there is more. Uh, it's certainly true we wouldn't be having this election if it wasn't for Brexit. Uh, and uh, Boris Johnson's claims uh, that he una- was unable to get uh, the agreement he reached with the EU through Parliament. Uh, but there is a sense uh, in which uh, neither of the main parties really wants to talk in detail about Brexit. Uh, on Mr. Johnson and the Conservative side, they simply want to say uh, they'll get it done, even although obviously it's something that Boris Johnson campaigned for passionately at the time of the uh, referendum in 2016. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't really like uh, going into details, and he's almost saying to people, I'll deliver you uh, from Brexit, even although he wouldn't be there uh, if he hadn't been the man who campaigned for it. And as far as Labour is concerned, uh, as you know, they have a compromised position on Brexit. They're neither for nor against, but they're uh, in favour of offering another referendum. So they have wanted to talk about other things as well. And, uh, you know, on the first Sunday of the official campaign, uh, the dispute going on today uh, is about spending plans, uh, uh, because we're in a very rare situation in the British election where there is really a spending auction between uh, Labour, who traditionally say that they will spend more on public services and the Conservatives who after a decade of austerity are now saying they'll spend as well uh, but they are trying to argue that Conservative spending will be responsible uh, whereas Labour spending uh, will be irresponsible. Sometimes when spending is just to purchase a vote you could say it's all um, rather crazy and irresponsible. Who's bowing out of politics now? I see that 
um, we would have an interest in is that Sylvia Harmon is, and she would be a big loss as far as we're concerned. Yeah, I think the departure of Sylvia Herman, uh, certainly she was uh, uh, regarded as uh, a very um, important independent voice uh, of unionism, but someone who was uh, above all uh, a defender uh, of the Belfast Agreement. And obviously uh, in her constituency now, uh, there is going to be uh, a fight and uh, certainly the DUP will be hoping that that might be uh, one of their gains that offsets uh, losses possibly elsewhere, as there's a sort of anti-alliance, uh, anti-DUP uh, collaboration between uh, Sinn Féin and some of the other parties. So I think she will be missed. Um, has to be said, uh, she was more respected by uh, pro-European uh, politicians on the conservative and on the opposition side. She was no particular friend uh, of uh, the uh, current Conservative government and the direction uh, in which things are going. And again, one of the fascinating things uh, about this election is the way that the DUP uh, have now ceased to support the government and uh, don't seem likely to come on board so long as Mr. Johnson continues to push uh, his agreement, which is uh, his committed position. Uh, so that means that uh, if we do get into what we call hung parliament, territory with no one having a majority of MPs, yeah. uh, makes it much more likely uh, that the opposition parties would emerge forming a government uh, than the Conservative Party, because now they've lost the DUP, they've got no obvious allies. Yeah, the only thing is when you say that he has expressed his commitment to it, he's expressed his commitment to other things before and then just changed his mind um, when, when it was pragmatic to do so. Can you explain to our listeners as it were, through a map. Well, we know Scotland voted uh, to remain. Uh, we know Wales uh, voted to remain. But there seems to be a huge emphasis on Northern England and the Midlands and what was traditionally uh, Labour that might go somewhere else now and explain that pattern to us. Yes, I think I can. I mean, Wales voted actually to leave uh, yes. narrowly. So... Uh, the argument uh, that is being made certainly by uh, the uh, Scottish nationalists is that Scotland's the only country uh, which isn't getting what it uh, wanted, uh, as, as they see it. Um, but no, that, the answer is that in the, uh, away from the big cities, uh, in large parts of uh, England, which historically have been going through a process of deindustrialization, uh, where uh, a lot of good, often unionized, uh, mainstream jobs have disappeared, although employment levels remain quite high. Uh, those were areas which voted heavily uh, in favour of uh, leaving the European Union. Now, traditionally, uh, the majority of those voters, uh, for social and class reasons, have been supporters of the Labour Party. Uh, and uh, what uh, is going on in this election is that the Conservative Party... Uh, is trying to break uh, what the so-called red wall of Labour voters in uh, those areas in the Midlands, in the northwest of England. People have personified this in so-called Workington Man. Uh, and they're trying to do it using uh, Brexit by saying that uh, the establishment, the Liberal establishment, is thwarting your votes for Brexit. Therefore, the Conservatives will deliver on your behalf. And they are backing that up uh, with 
uh, the spending proposals I've been talking yeah. about, extra spending on the health service, in the hope that they can win those people over. And if there was uh, to be a swing of between uh, 5 and 10% uh, from uh, Labour to the Conservatives in those constituencies, even though the majority of Labour supporters uh, carried on voting Labour, uh, it's likely that the Conservatives would win enough seats uh, to have an overall majority. And the uh, fly in the ointment, if you like, uh, is uh, the personage of Nigel Farage and his Brexit party, because uh, Conservatives are worried that if the Brexit party uh, runs well in this campaign, it'll be easier for traditional Labour voters to back Farage uh, than to uh, uh, back a Tory. Do you, do, you, do you go along with that? It, I mean, would the anti-Tory feeling be such that they would go for Farage? I think it's easier, and we've seen this certainly in the European elections, for example, it is easier to see people uh, who are, come from Labour families, are traditionally Labour. It's an easier move for them to go to the Brexit party as a protest party than it is actually to cross the floor and vote for the Conservatives, you know, identified with, uh, you know, the bosses uh, and the right. ruling elite. So that's one reason why... Uh, there's a big push by the Conservatives to try and shut down and exclude Nigel Farage and to tell uh, Leave voters that if he spoils the Conservative vote, all he'll achieve in doing uh, is meaning that the UK stays in the European Union right. at least long enough to hold yeah. a referendum, uh, which is precisely what they don't want. Uh, so, um, you know, one of the big unknowns at this election at the moment is precisely how well uh, the Brexit party will do. And if they manage to maintain 10, 15% of the vote, there's no doubt about it, that will stymie uh, the conservative tactic of taking seats in these uh, former Labour areas. Because it, it, in, in one strange way, wasn't as regarded as remarkable uh, that Boris Johnson won uh, the mayoralty of London, which is a traditional Labour um, stronghold, and he won it twice? Well, a, a mayoral elections, of course, are votes for individuals. And yeah. uh, what we've seen in mayoral contests in London and actually in those other places uh, around the country where they have got uh, directly elected mayors uh, is that party loyalties uh, tend to be ridden out by personalities. For example, Ken Livingstone Indeed. Uh, first yeah. was elected mayor uh, as an independent after he was uh, n left the Labour Party and then he came back in uh, as a member of the Labour Party and he's now out of the Labour Party again. So Boris Johnson won it on his personality uh, and he by and large won it with the support of the suburban ring uh, around London rather than central London which continues to be uh, pretty uh, close to Labour and we've now got the interesting uh, idea where Rory Stewart, the former cabinet minister, is running yes. as a uh, conservative cabinet minister, is running as an independent uh, and may well uh, do better uh, than the conservative candidate uh, Sean Bailey, even if Sadiq uh, Khan manages to be uh, re elected to a second term. So, yes, Boris Johnson's personality matters, and yeah. that's again a factor. Uh, that I'm told by people canvassing on the doorsteps in, you know, areas in, in the Midlands is very important that uh, the voters uh, in in uh, these areas do see, they don't uh, they see Boris Johnson as a bit of a card 
uh, a bit of a yeah. lad, but who is determined to deliver. They haven't blamed him uh, for not delivering on his pledge to get us out on Halloween. Uh, and conversely, uh, the personality of Jeremy Corbyn uh, seems very remote to them. He doesn't, you know, he's not seen as an asset. So again, uh, if you're talking about personality yes. and winning over those swing yeah. voters, uh, Boris Johnson probably has a bit of a strength. The um, well, I mean, wasn't it in American politics they were saying, you know, in terms of of what what qualities people like who would you like to go and have a pint with you know and i mean boris johnson one can presume would be great fun um like never mind his his policies but what is happening to the labor party well uh the labor party is trying to hold together to fight this election that because the election was called uh, attempts to purge New Labour people, Blairite and Brownite candidates, uh, didn't succeed. Uh, quite a lot of them uh, have decided to retire. But, you know, more than a third of the Labour candidates uh, are uh, will be MPs who uh, don't uh, like Jeremy Corbyn and have tried to unseat him in the past. So the Labour Party is holding together, trying to say... We have got a compromise position, uh, which is giving you a second choice on Brexit. Um, and some M- some candidates are saying I would vote Remain. Some are saying I'd vote for the New Deal, which uh, uh, Mr. Corbyn says he's going to negotiate. So it's not a very, you know, frankly, uh, the Labour Party, although it seems to be running quite a good campaign, uh, is not uh, a very happy ship at the moment. Uh, and, of course, uh, there have been a number of defectors, uh, a lot now who've ended up in the Liberal Democrats, right. uh, who defected because they didn't agree with, with, uh, with the left-wing nature of Mr. Corbyn's policies and also uh, because they feel he hasn't dealt with anti-Semitism uh, which, by yeah, some Labour people sufficiently. And this is a rumbling row, and we've seen, right going into this election and today, candidates uh, being accused of uh, anti-Semitism and uh, having to stand down. Uh, this week, Tom Watson, um, mm. deputy leader, said he would step down uh, and wouldn't run as an MP. What's the significance of that? I think it's very significant. Uh, Tom Watson was uh, the figure who set himself up as the person who would keep uh, the new Labour flame alive, alive within the party. He was, of course, directly elected, like Jeremy Corbyn, as deputy leader. Uh, and he became a rallying point for uh, the majority of Labour MPs, uh, really unhappy that the membership had uh, uh, gone for Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, but uh, effectively, uh, he uh, did not deliver in as much as he has never uh, led that group in a direction uh, directly uh, to. Sorry, I didn't catch that. Mr. I beg Corbyn's your pardon. Leadership, uh, and. Um, now he's walked away, and so those those people within the party who want to keep the flame of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown alive and reclaim the party uh, do feel betrayed and let down by uh, Mr. Watson, who uh, has gone through a bit of a sort of personal upheaval. Uh, he used to be uh, very fat. He's lost a lot of weight. He's got into uh, healthy eating and the gym and all that. Uh, he's got a diet book coming out, and he's basically said uh, he'd rather concentrate on that uh, than carry on the fight within the Labour Party. 
when the Labour Party changed its ruling about how to elect the leader uh, or how to indeed um, elect the deputy leader, in just correct me if I'm wrong on this, in the past that was done by the parliamentary party and then the rules were changed and it was done by the membership. And, you know, you could rock up with, with three pounds sterling, I think, and you were, you were a member of the Labour Party. W- was that part of what happened way back then? Well, it's, it's been quite a long time that the yeah. Labour membership have, have chosen the leader and the deputy leader. Uh, and you're right that, you know, back in the midst of time, it used to be uh, smoke-filled rooms when we still had smoke-filled rooms that would choose the leaders of the parties. Yeah. So all the parties in the UK, the Conservatives, Liberal Democrats as well, have now moved towards having a vote by the membership uh, rather uh, than the MPs. And certainly in the case of... Uh, the election of Mr. Corbyn, uh, there was uh, a flow of uh, radical uh, young, mainly young people, but some people uh, who'd been on the left of the Labour Party for a long time and had uh, either left or felt isolated during the Blair and Brown years, uh, who rejoined the party. So uh, a party which used to have you know, around 100,000 members voting, suddenly found it had more than half a million of them voted. And that certainly uh, helped um, uh, Mr. Corbyn get elected. But as I say, at the same time, uh, a lot of people took a side bet on uh, Tom Watson uh, as deputy leader uh, in a hope of uh, having a balanced ticket, but it didn't work out like that. Well, listen, very many thanks for your time. I can assure you there is an awful lot of interest this side of the water in what's going on on your side as well. Obviously, because uh, apart from anything else, it will be quite important to what's going to happen to us uh, post-Brexit. May I say thank you very, very much indeed for talking to us. That was Adam Bolton of Sky News. Podcast The Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie slash radio. Welcome back to the programme. Now, tomorrow uh, starts uh, RTE on Climate Change Week and it's to coincide with the annual Science Week. And we're joined by Ian Robertson, Professor of Psychology at Trinity College, Dublin, to talk about what's now called, as it were, officially, um, eco-anxiety and it's becoming quite a mental health issue right now and you were you were at the uh, web summit wasn't it? I was, yes, yes, yes. And and it's a a serious issue that's been treated very seriously in of all places the United States. Yes, I I, I hate hate the medicalisation of realistic anxiety. And it's not a it's not a syndrome. I remember, you know, I I had nuclear anxiety when I was in nineteen, you know, early sixties during the uh, the confrontation in the Cold War. So it's it's young people being understandably anxious about the future of the world, and anxiety is is a motivator of change. And so I hate the medicalization and the creating of syndromes. It doesn't it doesn't help. And and is that what they are doing? Yes, I think so, because. Um, you know, young. It kind of, you know, Greta Thornburg and and the, and the people she has has um, mobilised. I mean, they um, it kind of subverts what they're doing to say, oh, they're young people suffering from an anxiety. Let's treat it. I mean, that that doesn't make sense. They are they are justifiably worried about the state of the globe, and they're the ones going to reap the the whirlwind rather than older people like like us. 
And maybe that is reasonable, therefore, that it, the younger you are, the more likely you are to be to have that anxiety. Oh, absolutely. And we're now, you know, now these people have a hundred year perspective and, uh, you know, in a hundred years is where it's going to really kick in. Right. As well as beforehand. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Now, um, the, uh, on, on the, you say the headlines are real enough. Oh, 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 yes. So I, I, there's no doubt about it that um, climate change, we, we have to do something about it in the next 10 years. And uh, so the, the degree of anxiety and anger and apathy is under... And why is there apathy? Well, if you don't feel, if you feel something is inevitable that, and if you feel you don't have control, these are recipes the recipes. For apathy. So the human, what distinguishes humans from other species is not problem solving, it's not language, it's not tool use, it's, it's the ability to envisage things in the future that don't exist and work towards them. And that requires confidence. So, and confidence has two components. One is the belief that you can do something, and the second one is the belief that if you do something, good things or the right things will happen. So that's the can do and the can happen. Yeah. And so, if you have, if you, if you, only, if you have um, uh, neither can do nor can happen beliefs, then you will be apathetic. That actually affects your brain. It will lead you to zone out and say, "There's nothing I can do." But that's a state of apathy. If you believe you can do, but it won't happen, that leads to anger. Okay, that's a sense of frustration. If you believe that you, you can't do, but it could happen if you did, that leads to anxiety. It's only when you get the two of them together, the can-do and the can-happen beliefs, so you get oh. activation. So that's the fourth, the, you know, the, the, the state we want people to have to, to, to pressure for policy yes. change, because that's but the it, only isn't thing. Isn't anger very, very valid, and isn't it very powerful? Like, if you take that young girl's yeah. anger... She stopped us all in our tracks. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, ang anger is a very interesting emotion be because it's very empowering and motivating, And it, but it, it's a negotiation tool. That's what it is, its function in human evolution. And the worst thing you can do is to have anger that's diffuse, that's against the system, that it's against, that's anger that doesn't have a clear target and a clear request for change. If you harness anger to, um, to a target, for instance, a government, and a request for change, we need a different policy on climate change, that then becomes very empowering. That actually lifts people's mood. It it's a natural antidepressant. It's a natural anti-anxiety drug, that kind of a activation. So I think pessimistic anxiety is, is, is a, or, or pessimism even without anxiety, fatalism, are very dangerous emotions. I think what we have to do is to realise that Greta Thornberg I'm not saying her, but other people yeah. as well. What they have to do is to give people hope that stuff can be done. And that has to be at the policy level, it's not I, individual change. It has to be at policy yeah, level. As yeah, as well as individual change. I mean, change, the individual yeah. change sounds like you've been a very good person. Yeah. But, I mean, when you think of what's happening worldwide and yeah. globally... Um, whether you have spinach or steak seems to me not to be yeah. add up. I was going to say a hill of beans, but you would all cringe if I did. <laughs> um, I, I just wanted to come to you. Um, you're on the climate change mm -hmm. um, advisory council. Yeah, yeah advisory council. Mm. 
I mean, that young woman did capture people's imagination. She stopped us in our tracks. Yeah, no, without a doubt. And uh, actually, can I firstly say, I mean, normally when I'm discussing climate change issues, I'm opposite engineers and climate scientists. It's the first time I've dealt with a psychologist on this topic. So uh, Ina's put a whole load of issues into my head uh, that, that I'm well, sort of trying good. to... It is good. Yeah. Uh, but let me put it like this. I mean, I, I think uh, for, for quite a long time, there, there was a... a I think a failure to actually engage with the scale of the challenge that's there. Uh, I think there was also a bit of a sense of sometimes if a challenge is presented, uh, there's a sense of, oh, my God, it's so big, we're not going to be able to do anything about this. Uh, I think partly Greta Thunberg, again, sort of, I think, raising the consciousness has been very, very positive. I think I actually have to say, and sitting on the Climate Council, rather than getting terribly pessimistic, we would have a lot of people in who were talking about things like the sort of technological developments and things like solar energy, wind energy, the sort of falling costs of these sort of things. Things that can be done. Yeah, and there's, yeah, I mean, there is a sense that, yes, the challenge is absolutely huge but it is actually manageable but again back to the point about who, who is like individual actions are important but there is no doubt uh, that state actions are, are really where we need to go and I think to, for people to start getting comfortable yeah. and if I can tell you a tiny little example of this yeah. uh, somebody the, somebody from the ESB was talking about this that you know these sort of smart meters uh, where you can track your energy usage and then maybe put the boiler on at night when the usage uh, evidence to suggest that these things often work for about a month or two okay <laughs> that you get these sort of things installed and people will react as individuals but that ultimately you need the power system to be re-engineered yeah, yeah, exactly. so that it's the sort of it's the major state action so I think you know we need individual but my god we really need state action here as well Right um, the Web Summit Web Summit was fascinating 70,000 70, people uh, incredible Edward yeah. Snowden Edward Snowden speaking live from Moscow I mean giving it to Facebook everyone was giving it to Facebook for, for what, they're, what they're doing or not doing um, Michel Barnier uh, talking about the future of Europe and the first thing he said was uh, the first priority for the future of Europe is peace on the island of Ireland and, and he got applause I mean that, that, that was incredible and then the second thing is trade deals but it has to be trade deals not just profit right so it sounded like it was all going to be pretty uh, terrific uh, to have been there. I wish I had more time with you, but we're all out. And I know that it's Science Week this week, and there's a big thing in the papers today about a place called Explorium, which does all these interactive science things, and I gather it's terrific, and they're doing special offers this week. And I've told you about the programme, but that's all we have time for for today. So I'd like to thank everybody that contributed to the programme. Today's researchers, Katrina McFadden and Michelle Brown, Broadcasting Coordinator Emily Harley, on Sound Shield Neville. The show today was produced by the series producer Rachel Graham. That's all from us. Until the next time, a very good day to you.